Good day, ladies and gentlemen. You've probably heard the body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, it could use some incense. That's why I've got my cigar here. You see, I'm in my uh, wonderful workout room studio. Anyway, I just had the pleasure of sitting down with a friend of mine, Dan Schneider, talking about the charismatic renewal. This interview is challenging. If you're someone who's part of the charismatic renewal, this is not an attack on any persons. We don't mention any, any apostolates or any persons or anything like that. But there's some hard questions that have to be asked about the charismatic renewal. And uh, we do that. And it's difficult to hear in some cases, but I hope that you stick around and, and listen to the whole thing. And I'd like to thank, thank our sponsor, Queen of Victory Rosaries. You can see here, I have it up on the screen, um, everything you could ever want in a rosary store is here. And I have one of these rosaries and I use it every day. It's absolutely wonderful. And uh, I'll actually put a picture on screen here. Um, of the rosary that uh, the lady behind this uh, business sent me. And it's a 15-decade rosary, custom-made, and it has the birth dates of my children so far, the five children we have so far. My wife's expecting our our sixth uh, child in about six weeks. And every Our Father bead is the date of birth of a child. And, and she actually said, whenever a new child's born, I don't know if we'll fill 15, my poor wife, if we get that far. Um, and my poor wallet. But um, every time we have a new child, we can send that back and she'll add a new birthday. Uh, and that's the sort of stuff that she does over there. So please check out Queen of Victory Rosaries in, in the, uh, the, the link for that is in the description box of this video. There are seven sorrow chaplets, stations of the cross, 15 decade rosaries, like, like I said, uh, St. Michael chaps, gift sets, Christmas is around the corner. You're going to want something. And if you like tea, even tea diffuser, all this stuff is custom made, military first responder things. I mean, everything is there. It's a wonderful place. Thank you to Queen of Victory Rosaries. Use the coupon code Kennedy at checkout and you can get what you need. And there's a guarantee on these products, general wear and tear. You send it back and she fixes it up. Okay, enjoy the video and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here in my new... My new old studio, my uh, bench press behind me. You can see my circuit board on the wall there for the electrical. You know, uh, we don't just do this for the money, do we, Dan? Uh, we do this for the love of the faith. So sometimes we make sacrifices. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm here with my friend Dan Schneider. He is the author of The Libra Cristo Method, which sold out for 10 books and uh, forward by Father Ripperger. Field Manual for Spiritual Combat. I recommend everyone check that out. It's in the link to this video. It's at the links in the description box. And we're going to talk today about a very sensitive, controversial, but important aspect of the Catholic faith in the post-conciliar era. We're talking about the charismatic renewal. And I'm going to give a little bit of a lengthy introduction before I let Dan take the reins because he is an expert in this. And we're going to talk about things like modernism as we go. Um... I spent about two years in the renewal and I had wonderful friendships, uh, people I'm still friends with today. Uh, I have nothing but positive things to say about the goodness of the people that I was interacting with. And I do owe a lot to places like, um, you know, some of these apostolates that were there running organizations and events when I was coming back to the sacraments, because in sort of the average parish setting, there wasn't a lot going on, especially here in Ontario, Canada. There was no tradition to be found. There wasn't really anything. And there were charismatics who were serious and devoted, devout, loved God, loved the Virgin Mary, and they were there. And I'm eternally grateful for all the wonderful experiences. But after a certain amount of time, you know, I saw a lot of things when I was in the renewal that were really concerning to me, you know, some weird practices, you know, with a lot of things that are common at events, the laying of hands and the sort of gifts and things, which I was kind of, even at the time, kind of thinking to myself, not really sure how I feel about that. Um, heavy emphasis on lay leadership, female leadership, which are things as I've become a traditionalist, I realized are, are antithetical to the way the church has run in the past and are just problems. So we're going to touch on those realities from a perspective of what is the theology behind the renewal how, is it, how should we understand this as Catholics, looking at all of the theology from the church's history, not just the last 50 years? And ultimately, kind of what are the dangers and are we seeing some of the fruits of those things? So if you are someone who is a partisan of the renewal, please listen to this episode 
We're not here to attack anybody. We're here just to sort of provide information and you can do with that what you will. Okay. Does that sound good, Dan? That sounds fine. Okay. So where should we begin? Um, the renewal. I mean, as it states, it's a renewal. It's a it's a, a rising up of the Holy Ghost and the church is kind of the idea and it took hold after the council. But really, it seems that the renewal has its roots in something like Pentecostalism. What's the story behind that, generally speaking? Yeah, generally speaking, the, the, the modern understanding of the Pentecostal renewal, the Holy Roller Movement, the Uzzah Street Revival goes back about 100 years or more now um, with a, you know, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Um, and so at a time when in the, in the post-conciliar Catholic Church, um, there was a little bit of a stagnation theologically, a bit of stagnation. I mean, I just did the uh, edited this book by Father Amor about Father the life of Father Amorth, um, put out by Tan, the biography of his. You know, this was a time when that even in the, among the hierarchy, there was a, a real rejection of even the uh, presence of the devil. I mean, in the book, he recounts the story. Uh, the author recounts the story of of Father Amorth sitting down with a uh, a cardinal, and the cardinal said, "You don't believe in all this devil stuff, do you?" I mean, and and Father Moore says, "Well, I have a book I'd like you to read that might explain uh, exorcism and, and the devil a little more clearly. If you'd like to read it, he said, "Yes, I would love to read what you're considering the foundational book on how to how to understand evil spirits and the devil." And he says, "Well, it's called the Gospel. It's called the New Testament." Um, so so there's a real rejection, um, and so the the renewal came in. Uh, again, in my, in my, both my experience and my observation, it came in and kind of filled a void and, uh, and, those, and did a lot of good for the church, uh, teaching people how to pray, uh, engage. Like you say, you go to most parishes, uh, a lot of the people that are involved, uh, heavily involved with the parish are, are, you know, have been through some sort of renewal. And so there's a lot of other renewal movements out there. There's Acts, there's, there's um, you know, Crucio. There's all sorts of good renewal movements out there. Uh, you just have to be careful that it stays grounded in the the tradition of the church and the Roman Catholic faith. You know, so um, you might, for example, I know for a while the, the I, I'm I'm a big fan of the Axe retreats as they do a lot of good. But for a while, one of the local Axe, the men, um, they would they would go through this, have this encounter with Christ for the first time. They really awaken the life of God within them, and then they teach them centering prayer instead of, you know. Catholic tradition. So you just have to be careful that we don't, we don't come unmoored from 2000 years of tradition. Yeah. And I will say this as well, you know, um, it's true that in our age, I mean, we've forgotten God. So you find a group of people who are excited about belief in God, excited about the faith, believe in the supernatural, believe in miracles, you know, believe in this stuff that looks like the Bible. I mean, if, if the Bible is true and the Holy Spirit is real and all these sorts of things, you would expect that you would see supernatural things. There's nothing wrong with that, that mentality. And of course, throughout the church's history in the great saints, we do see these Christ-like instances of healings and, and um, levitations and these sorts of things. But there is a danger in, as you said, sort of this awakening. Well, it, I, I found in my experience in the renewal, even in myself and with others, um, because if you're coming from a place of complete spiritual dryness, unawareness, uh, you're bereft of the life of God in your soul, you have an, a moment. I mean, and it's, it's partly emotional, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Our emotions are our emotions. We are human beings. If we have happiness and joy and excitement that is felt in the body because of something to do with a religious experience, there's nothing wrong with that. But you can chase that experience as if that's a barometer of whether or not your religious belief is actually validated. And this is where we start to get into some of the murky waters that we've seen since Pope Pius X warned about modernism. And one of the things that he warned about was this, this error, this heresy of what's called vital imminence. So our experience is the barometer of whether or not the religious thing we're doing is true. And again, imminence is real. Uh, the liturgy, yeah. the traditional Latin mass is very imminent. The, the, the presence of God is imminent. The, the incense is there. You know, the, the, the silence, there is a, 
you know, to use a term in an equivocal sense, there's a magical reality to, you know, um, the drama of the liturgy, which really does make God imminent. But for imminence to be the barometer of whether or not the religion is true is vital imminence, and that causes problems. What would you say to that? Yeah, no, true. Um, imminentism is from the 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 the, the Latin imen, in menare to remain in. Here's how Father Ripper defines it um, in Dominion. A philosophy which holds that anything of important contained within the individual, that is, the individual becomes the measure or standard by which things are judged. Imminent comes from two Latin words, in menere, which means to remain in. Thus, imminentism essentially holds that exterior reality is not important except to the extent that we can express ourselves in it. What really important is what is within ourselves. Um, and so we can see if the focus isn't on the indwelling of God, if it isn't focused on sacramental grace and that imminentism isn't experienced in relationship to the objective reality found in the in the, the the sacraments and one's relationship to God through Christ sacramentally, that objective reality dictates our standing before God. It has nothing to do with our emotion. So if if, if you if you build your spiritual life based upon an emotional feeling, those things come and go and you could be easily led down a path, uh, um, false locutions, uh, uh, um, uh, parallel uh, false spiritual gifts. It, there has to be a tremendous amount of discernment and humility. Uh, uh, even Father Gabriel Amorth, um, there's a new book out on his life, uh, uh, 101 Questions with Father Amorth. And um, he, he, he is asked the question, Father Monsignor Stephen Rossetti uh, does this for Sophia Press. And, he, and one of the questions was, what is your relationship, in your opinion, of the charismatic renewal? And Amorth, Father Amorth, um, who we know is the, the grandfather of modern exorcism, he said that, um, you know, we have to be open but cautious. That's always the church's position on, on uh, supernatural phenomena. But he said that anyone who says, I am charismatic, I have these gifts, he says, that is not, they are certainly saying that they are not that with those gifts always comes a profound humility and it's always ordered towards holiness and it's made subject to the authority of the church. And so uh, what most people don't understand, for example, the imposition of hands, this is a huge topic right now. Um, and Father Gabriel Amorth uh, in this particular uh, book that Monsignor Rossetti uh, has, has assembled um says that uh, he 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 discourages lay Catholics from imposing hands. M Father Ripperger, of course, Monsignor Rossetti, Monsignor Pope, Charles Pope, Father Kabating, the chief exorcist in the, in the in the Philippines, which is very influential in the International Association of Exorcists. Father uh, Father Dan Rehill, all prominent, well-educated uh, exorcists, all saying that laity should not be imposing hands upon upon other laity to drive out demons so this isn't this isn't you know one school of thought they're echoing from their their both their experience as exorcist uh and also their theological training that we have to we have to have that distinction because if authority is imminent to me right if i if i take authority which is the common language of the protestant model if i take authority authority is your authority in your home, you don't take that authority, uh, Kennedy. You have that authority. It is imbued in the office of father and head of, and head of household. So if you take that authority, you're now un, un, uncritically accepting imminentism in many ways. You're saying that authority is 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 imminent to me, and it's, it's it, or you're claiming it as charism, but ultimately. I think it goes back to what you brought up on imminentism. You're claiming this authority, uh, and you're collapsing power with authority, which is very common. Jesus himself, when he sends out the, 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 the 12, he didn't send out you and me. He sends out the 12 and he gave them power and authority, two different things. Power is the ability to affect change. Authority is the right to act to, to the right to command, to obligare, to bind uh, uh, another to to obligate another, and that flows through office. It's a it's it's a complicated topic, but it's actually very very simple when you understand. Now, going to the root of it, in my observation is that um, in 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 the modern church, we've collapsed the universal priesthood of the laity into the sacerdotal priesthood of the ordained. 
but but even in the Second Vatican Council in the Lumen, Lumen Gentium, uh, uh, the document on the church very clearly says that the the these two priesthoods you you and I share in a universal priesthood through baptism, our pastors serve uh, our priests forever uh, with the sacer the mark the indelible mark of of priesthood which will remain forever. These are these different essence and degree, it says in Second Vatican Council. So we have to not we have to separate those back out and look at the authority that is innate to innate to each uh, uh, one according to their office in relationship to the Christ and the church. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe I'll tell a quick story. So this idea of authority. Um, you mentioned how we just kind of have this office, you know. And this is not just in the church. This is in the natural law. This is in our daily lives. So we have friends. We have a lot of friends in the States and our close friends, the Smiths, they were visiting us. Uh, they're from Maryland and, and the wife is, uh, she's a Southern gal. Uh, so she's from Virginia. So anyway, but um, they were up here visiting. And so there's this thing that happens here that the, the meter maids, like the people that watch the, where the cars are parked for tickets and things like that in some towns, what they do is they go by and they put a piece of chalk on your wheel anyway and then um if they see the car with the piece of chalk in the same spot or something like that within an hour they know that you've stayed too long and they give you a ticket it's like their method so our friend from the states she sees this happening she says to my wife she goes he can't he can't touch your property like that and it was just funny this uh different conception i would never think as a canadian oh this guy was infringing on my property because i'm in this public space Anyway, it's a different conception of, of, of property rights. But the point is, is everyone has this understanding that by virtue of ownership, by virtue of mm-hmm. not even just ownership, if you rent a house, it's your house, you're in the house, you live there. Property is not, uh, nine, nine tenths of the law is, is uh, possession is nine tenths of the law, you know, you are there. So we understand in just the natural world that when a thing is ours, it's under our dominion and Therefore, we do have certain rights over those things. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have rights to do things that we don't have the authority to do. You know, every priest is, in, in potential, is an exorcist in the sense that he could be an exorcist because he has, he's the priestly, he has the priestly character on his soul. Um, but historically, it's always been either bishops or abbots or superiors or whatever the structure is in the different places that if they're going to perform some sort of solemn exorcism, then there's a necessity for there to be a chain of command. And again, it's not because of some magical power. It's not because of, uh, you know, the bishop puts his hands on the priest and says, now you've received the magic exorcism juice. It's this, the chain of command is there. And one thing I want to say as well is we mentioned gifts and humility. So one of the things that I would find when I was in the charismatic renewal, they'd say, Kennedy, we're going to pray for you to, I never did the tongues thing. I never did the speaking in tongues, but I saw a lot of it and I was always skeptical of it, but they'd say, we're going to pray for you to have the gift of tongues. And I'm like, okay. I mean, again, I don't know what I was doing. I'm like, well, the logic of it, if God wills it, it'll happen. I'm not going to try to do anything because that would be strange. I mean, I'm not going to force God's hand. That doesn't seem like something that would work to me. Uh, So it never happened because I was, you know, trying to play it safe. But um, I would see these different people all in, and this isn't a judgment on individuals, but like, I know these people, they're, they're, they were former students of mine, or they're people that I know from the parish or they're whatever. And it's like, I know they're struggling in their personal lives with grave mortal sins. Again, it's, it's not a judgment. It's just, we're friends. We talk, I know what's going on. And I'm thinking, okay, so I read about St. So-and-so in her like 12th year in the convent receives gift X, Y, and Z. I, that makes sense to me. Because she's like fasted and mortified and she's humble and she's, you know, she's, she's, she's a woman of prayer. She's holy. Of course, God's going to bestow this gift that is good for building up the church of Christ uh, through a holy, humble servant. But I'm like, you just got on a bus and went to a Steubenville conference in the summer and came back and all of a sudden you have a gift. And I'm like, you haven't even got over your porn habit yet, you know? And, and uh, so to go back to what you said about humility, like, if people are looking for gifts and they're looking for them as if they're some sort of proof of themselves being chosen by God, I don't know how you get into that mindset without 
without getting egotistical or something like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really, it's it's the sin of presumption. You have to always be be aware of the sin of presumption. And and uh, uh, after working, you know, ten years almost now, working cases of diabolic affliction, you learn to not trust yourself at all, and to not trust the supernatural because it could be easily it can be easily be mimicked. Uh, and, and you could fall into, uh, um, you could fall down the, the demon knows that you're, that you're interested in the spiritual gifts. He will, he'll draw you down a rabbit hole. You know, it's like the, it's, you know, basketball, you know, the, the, there's always a drunk guy in the crowd that's, that's mouthing off to the referee. And if he knows the referee has rabbit ears, he'll just keep hammering that guy the whole game. So if the demon knows you got rabbit ears and you're really interested in that, um, he can walk you down a rabbit hole, but here's what father Morth says. Um, Famous quotes. One good confession is worth a hundred exorcisms. The best exorcism is confession. Oftentimes in these movements, um, uh, we have a separation uh, of the sacramental system. Um, In the name of charism, you separate the sacraments. All things should lead us to the sacraments. Our definition of liberation, uh, of Catholic liberation, is reconciliation with God the Father through Jesus Christ, and it has to come through the sacrament. So oftentimes you'll see a co- not only a collapse in the priesthoods, the universal and the sacerdotal, but you'll you'll see a breakdown and 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 almost at times even ignoring the the objective grace ex opere operato that occurs at every single uh, a sacrament particularly confession and and uh, holy eucharist but he says so one confession is worth a hundred exorcisms he said satan is more enraged when we take souls away from him through confession than we take away bodies through exorcism because the sacraments tear this this sacrament tears the souls from the demon's grasp strengthens against sin unites us more closely to God and helps conform our souls increasingly to the divine will. And so he says, and this is a hard, this is a hard saying. There was always a strong temptation. This is Father Gabriel Amorth, um, uh, who, who Father Ripper referred in the introduction to this, this biography. He calls him arguably uh, an approved author, which is a theological packed term. Okay. There is a strong temptation for charismatics, sensitives, and exorcists. Sensitives are those um, that Father Morth would have, that would travel with him, and some modern exorcists even have those on their teams. Uh, so they they have you know gift of discernment. Um, of there's always a temptation of these of to find the quickest way to heal by going outside of the common sacred means to obtain grace. He says, and th- and in so doing, when they go outside of the ordinary channels of to obtaining grace, they he Father Moore says they unwittingly fall into the trap of superstition or magic. So we have to be very careful that a kind of a Gnostic view slips in um, that, that, that we, and we slip into kind of a white magic when it comes to, to uh, uh, spiritual gifts, when it comes to liberation, etc. And what are the ordinary means, the sacraments, prayer and suffering and suffering. And so the, the redemptive value of suffering. So at the same time, we have this modern, a modernist movement that that uh, at one point was rejecting the supernatural. Now it's an overemphasis of the supernatural. But part of the modernist movement is is the rejection of the redemptive value of suffering. And so, you know, in our in our experience working with cases for many years now, it's growing in holiness, union, objective union with God uh, um, through the sacraments, and learning to vicarious voluntary atonement is absolutely critical. For, for growing in holiness and, and, and the, the uh, um, liberation. When St. Thomas talks about the laity, um, and I'm, I'm in the process of unpacking this um, for another book, but when Thomas talks about the laity and driving out demons and the right to command, first he asks, is it right for one man to command another person? Yes. If there's a relationship of superior to inferior, then he says, is it, is it lawful to adjure and command a demon? And Thomas affirms, yes, in the affirmative, based upon what I said before. So there's a hierarchy of, of superiority. So and in other words, it's based upon one's office in relation to the person, place, or the object. And then it asks about driving demons, and he cites as example, and, and there's a uh, McCollum and, and uh, Colum and McHugh have a, a good uh, uh, commentary on Thomas. And Thomas cites uh, a laity who drive out demons. And, and who do they cite? St. Catherine of Siena and Anthony of Egypt, two virgins 
consecrated religious virgins um, uh, who, who were both known to, to cause terror to, in the diabolic realm. And so it's cautionary for us to say, well, see, lay people uh, uh, can drive out demons because Thomas says you can. But look who are listed as examples. I can tell you, uh, you know, the Woody Allen quote in one of his movies, he, uh, uh, he, uh, um, uh, I'm no Cary Grant. I don't care what anybody says. Right. So. I'm no Anthony of the desert. I don't care what anybody says, you know. So we have to be very careful because the demon will walk you down. Um, He will walk you down this path. The demon always works in the objective, only the objective. But he drives us to, 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 to our subjective feelings. He drives us to what we feel subjectively. Uh, but he only drives and works in the objective. I muted myself. It's like I knew okay. this before. I pressed pause, then I muted it, whatever. If uh, So if you're someone who wants to drive out demons, okay, I guess go live in the desert for like a decade, um, eat locust and cactus or something, um, be a virgin and like be a walking be a walking transfiguration or something. And then probably if you show up to an exorcism, the devil's going to flee because you're so holy. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, you know, yeah. do that I mean, we, first, I guess. The lay people, this is where there's, there's, there is a bit of, of, of discussion in the modern church. What, what are the limits of authority that lay people can and should engage the enemy, right? Thomas says that, that we should engage the enemy to push against back against evil. But again, everything was predicated in that pre, his previous paragraph where he says, Based upon one's basically one one's office, uh, if it's if it's a relationship of superior over inferior, an inferior doesn't say you know a, a, he uses the, the the example of a beggar. A beggar doesn't walk up to a rich man and say, "I command you to give me money." He beseeches him, and that's the difference: is that we've lost our understanding of the difference between imprecatory and deprecatory. Imprecatory, the prechase is a Latin word for pray to 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 beseech. Imprechase is to pray over, right? And to do that. There, there's implied an implied office. To day preach is, is to beseech, to pray from from beneath and beseech the mercy of God. Both of those are very legitimate, but it based it's based upon your office. Here's the um, this is the book of blessing, the rise book of blessings, and and really the right to bless and the right to command kind of follow the 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 right. I mean, the right to command the demon really follows the right to bless, and so this is the the book of blessings. Um, the ministry of blessing involves a particular exercise of the priesthood of Christ in keeping with the place and office within the people of God, belonging to each person. The exercise, so that's a key point, in keeping with the place and office within the people of God, belonging to each person. The exercise of this ministry is determined in the following manner. Then it lists off bishop, presbyter, deacon, right? Uh, uh, and then acolyte. And then it gets to lay people and allow certain blessings. And the footnotes, by the way, when they, when you look at the footnotes of of who was uh, examples of blessing, the, the in, in the imposing of hands and blessing, it's patriarchal and and priestly from the Old Testament into the New, and so it follows through the office. And even when you follow those blessings that a laity are allowed by the Revised Roman Missal, in the old in the old Roman ritual there, there was no lay blessings but they knew they revised it every single one of those is only a handful and it has to do with blessings of new homes meaning new to you you go to your home this is new to you you have the right to to do the the, the epiphany blessing or whatever blessings you have the obligation really to do that you cannot bless objects lay people cannot bless things they can bless you know, a husband bless his wife a wife can bless her husband's body and the children you know there's a, there's a, there's a very clear delineation according to that office. But even those blessings in the book of blessings that allow, whether it's a new home or persons, with the implication is your family members, it's deprecatory in its form uh, in, in the book of blessings. So we've kind of lost our understanding of what this gesture means. You know, you know that, that this gesture of the imposing of hands, that is a priestly gesture. That's a gesture of, the, of, of, of a priest. And so when we do that, um, you're, you're projecting, if you will, into the cosmos a certain meaning that you cannot separate that meaning from, 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 from the intention. So that, so that, that, that gesture of imposing of hands is a priestly gesture or something that the patriarchs did. Even in the new Testament, um, the imposition of hands was used by Christ and the apostles for healing. 
not for driving out demons. It was done for healing and for blessing. Jesus laid hand and blessed the children. For the and, and Paul and, and also imposition of hands is, is is in the sacrament of of, of order. So Paul says, stir into a flames uh, into a flame the the gift you receive through the imposition of my hands. Nowhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament is the imposition of hands used to drive out demons. Nowhere has is that used. That that and even in the in the formal rite of exorcism. In the, in, in the old ritual, the priest, when he's commanding the demon, he places his stole or the ritual calls for a sacramental. When he's laying hands, when he imposes hands, um, it's not an imposition of hands. He's actually imposing his stole, his priestly stole. And when he does impose hands at the end of the ritual, it's an imposition of blessing. You see the distinction? And we've lost that distinction because if you collapse the two priesthoods into one, um, then we now collapse activities and you begin to blend those. And this is where the danger can come in. And it isn't, this isn't theory for me because the, because Father Ripperker has aptly, has aptly shown and taught. And I've seen this myself in, in my years of working with him and working cases, the barometer's retaliation. That's the real barometer. You step outside of the authority, the barometer of retaliation. You know, we had a prayer meeting last night with a men's group. And one of the guys is a jujitsu fighter. And I was a decent Decent amateur boxer. Decent. Okay. And you take a decent amateur boxer and a decent jujitsu fighter. What's the jujitsu fighter going to want to do? We stay on our feet. He doesn't have much of a chance, but if he gets me on the ground, I'm in big trouble. I'm going to perceive this laying on my back guard position. I'm going to perceive that as, as a weakness and I'm going to go after it. And what's he going to do? As soon as I start to try to ground and pound, he's going to do very unnatural things to my arm or my throat. You know, so the demon will will take a beating to get you outside of authority to 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 do to do a, an arm bar or chokehold, so to speak. And that's what it looks like. And that's why you have to be very cautious about about this particular practice. OK, let's go back to because we talked about the one side <coughs> excuse me, of modernism, which basically there's two pillars to modernism. And one of them is vital imminence, which we've I think we've gone over pretty well here. The other side, though, is the evolution of dogma. So there basically, if there are two pillars to modernism, if you read Pashendi by Pius X, which I recommend everybody does, and I have a book in the works that'll be out hopefully by the end of next year on this, um, and um, it's vital eminence and the evolution of dogma. Vital eminence we explained. What is the evolution of dogma? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this principle that, uh, and it is not, it is not, um, it is linked. It is not completely separate from evolution in the biological sciences. People like to separate the two. They're not really because everything begins in the metaphysical before it becomes a, become, becomes a physical experiment. Okay. So right. this principle of progress, this principle that, well, it's Teilhard de Chardin. Everything's moving towards an omega point, that sort of thing. So the evolution of dogma is basically, you know, the good modernists would say, well, it's not really that doctrine changes, it's that it evolves. They'd say it's different. You know, they'd say it's not that it's changing in a sense where it's heresy. They'd say it's becoming what it was meant to become, which is different than what it was. They're saying the same thing. They're just putting a little spin on it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's very difficult to avoid this side of the modernist problem in the charismatic renewal. And here's why. The charismatic renewal as such, Again, we're not talking about, there have always been individuals with gifts. There's always been a little old lady in an Italian village who was a prophet or something. That's, that's always happened, okay? You know, there's little special stories. That's fine. But the movement per se, this idea that given this at an arbitrary time, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it is, it was the time the Holy Ghost was going to move through the church in a special way and bring on new things. If you believe that, then whether you explicitly say it or implicitly imbibe this belief, you get to a point where you have to believe that there was something like an unleashing of the Holy Ghost in the church that was different than how it was for many, many centuries. And that's just not something that we find in Catholic tradition. Um, furthermore, if you look at the way the charismatic renewal is practiced, it is practiced very different than how the Catholic faith has always been practiced. And we cannot separate the Lex Orandi from the Lex Credendi. We cannot separate the way that we pray from the way that we believe. It's, uh, you know, I think many charismatics, again, they're very orthodox in the general sense because they're reading their catechisms and they're listening to good talks and they're reading Scott Hahn and whatever. And like they've got their 
basic Catholicism 101 down, but they're fighting this other side of them that is bringing them towards this very Protestant Pentecostal belief set. And these things come into contradiction with one another. And this ties into this, you know, new springtime we've been promised, this spirit of Vatican II, which has turned out to not be so good, it seems, um, where you have to believe that what happened in the 60s was good. You have to believe in the surprises of the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that. Otherwise, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And we see something similar in the charismatic renewal. If somebody gets involved in renewal, they have to believe that there's been a fundamental shift in the church in order for this thing to make sense. And that, in my opinion, maybe you can comment yeah. on this, this leads us to things like the synod on synodality. I mean, yeah. I did a video on this. Listen, I understand many charismatics, like strong, faithful, conservative charismatics, you know, they're going to look at the synod on synodality and say, that's a disaster. And I'm going to say, okay, I get that. Maybe because they're liberals, it's a disaster. But the ecclesiology is the same. You have priests and laymen on equal footing. You have women in positions of leadership. You have people in a room saying, we're going to figure out what the will of the Holy Ghost is. And I've seen this. I've been in these prayer meetings where it's like, we're going to, we're going to plan some sort of praise and worship festival or something like that. And we're, it's like, everyone should pray and ask the Holy Ghost for guidance. And there's 12 people and the Holy Ghost has 12 different ideas. It's like, that's not of God. He doesn't have a, he, has, he doesn't, he doesn't have a bifurcated will. He has one will, you know? And, and uh, this is the same as a synod. Lay people with positions of authority, lay people with positions of teaching, lay people in positions of leadership, and women exalted to a place where they have to be looked at as authorities in the church. And this happens all the time in the renewal. The only difference is that in the renewal, it's conservative, and in the synod, it's liberal. But the ecclesiology is the same. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um I know that there's there's a lot of good. I mean, as you you and I both know, there's a lot of good people in the renewal that are doing good things. But I think we need to look at first principles um, um, and and really look at deeply where is the um, where do we know the foundation of truth, right? So also, if you look at, um, I want to I want to touch on what you said, Deschardins, but also um, in Pius X. In Adiem Laetissimum, he wrote a, an encyclical in the 50-year uh, um, anniversary of the Declaration of the Dogma of, of uh, the Immaculate Conception. And he, he remarks what he calls the plague of modernism. And so he gives four or five key points to the plague of modernism. Number one is the rejection of the dogma of the fall and original sin. And therefore, no need for a redeemer, a redeeming church, or for grace. Uh, number two, rejection of the supernatural. Number three, rejection of the, re the law of suffering and the redemptive value of suffering. And finally, and this is a critical one, rejection of the authority structure, both the church authority and natural law. And so um, we have really what you have principally at work behind the scenes, in my observation, my, again, this is a, my scholarly opinion, uh, an observation, you have, you have, you look at the catechism number 84, we have what's called the sacred deposit of faith, the depositum fidei. The apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of faith contained in sacred scripture and tradition to the whole of the church. Um, so we explain what this deposit of faith is. Going back to the first century, Irenaeus of Lyon and, and other early church fathers talked about the unbending rule of faith. Does is this consistent with that which was handed over from Christ to the apostles? And for for Saint Irenaeus, doctor of the church, the rule of faith it was a guide for exegesis, and it, and and it was to guide you in prayer and holiness. And so, built into the deposit of faith, and going back to the apostles, uh, is this consistent with them? Because it leads us to how do we understand sacred scripture, and how do we and do we grow in holiness? This is the whole point. Of understanding the, doc, the, the dogma, uh, the understanding of what it means, this this deposit of faith handed down and safeguarded by the church. The opposite, you mentioned Chardin. The opposite is called process theology. This is um, I'm reading from Father Mar Father Hardin's Modern Catholic Dictionary. This is a, a great book for every every everybody every Catholic needs this book in this bookshelf. This is process theology. Um, a view of reality, including what Christianity calls God, which sees everything still in the process of becoming what it will be, but nothing really is. 
It is you hear the immanentism in there as well, and you also hear nominalism, right? Going all the way back to to Occam in the in the twelve hundreds, thirteen hundreds, prefiguring Luther and nominalism that truth are in name only, and if they're in name only, we can change them, just like the idea of of gender. Now, right? I read a, a scholarly article that said gender is a, everybody knows. It says and this is an academic article, peer reviewed article. Everybody knows gender is a social construct. Really, not everybody. Actually, those who believe in natural law would would say otherwise. So not everybody believes that. So so again, gender is in is in this fluid process. It's called theology because it is a form of evolutionary pantheism, which postulates a finite God who is becoming perfect, but is not, as Christianity believes, infinite and all perfect from eternity. It is called process because it claims that the universe, including God, is moving towards completion without identifying what this completion is or when or whether it will be reached. On these terms, nothing is stable, nothing is certain, nothing really is. There are no determined moral laws, no absolute norms of conduct, no certain principles of thought, no means of knowing anything. There is no thing since what people call things are moving functions that keep changing in their very being. So you're going back to Occam, William of Occam, and and then Luther and nominalism. There are no such thing as things. There's no such thing as catness, of beardness, of cigarness. There's no such thing. These are all constructs, right? They, that constantly move. Um, and so no means of knowing anything. There is no thing since what people call things are moving functions that keep changing their very being. Everything, including the thinking mind, is ever becoming what it was not and ceasing to be what it was. You hear even traces of Mormonism in there, right? Uh, uh, that that what you know the tenet of Mormonism is that what God now is, you will someday be what what you are now. God Father once was right that you'll be a God on your own planet. This is one of the tenets of Mormonism. Ironically, this Father Radcliffe, this 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 uh, 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 um, Dominican priest, uh, g- gave the retreat opening retreat to the Synod, and he wants to be inclusive of all people, including he said. Um, polygamist, okay, ironically, but I digress. Process theology. Not all adherents are, uh, to, of what is called process theology are consistently evolutionary, but once they postulate a finite God who is still growing in perfection, logically all the rest follows. And then he lists off some of the fathers, philosophical fathers of that. So I think this is where we're at. Um, I think this is what we're looking at in the church. If you look at behind the scenes, the philosophical assertions behind the assumptions come down to two basic camps. Either you believe that that uh, um, that there is a deposit of faith that is to be safeguarded and, and lived out anew in each generation. It doesn't mean we don't change our, our language, our approach. We don't probe deeper into the mystery of the faith or the mystery of the Virgin Mary, the mystery of the sacraments, the priesthood. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't uh, try to probe deeper into these realities, but we stay grounded in that which was turned from Christ, given from Christ to the apostles and their successor bishops. That is our understanding, Catechism 84 of the Deposit of Faith. But the other camp that's driving, this other philosophical camp that's driving is this process theology. There are no such things there are no, that, that are objectively standard universals. It's a rejection of universals. And everything, like you say, Deschardins took uh, um, the, 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 the evolutionary theory and applied it to theology and this is where we're at today. We're living in the fruit of that. And this is this is this is again part of this the rejection of the authority structure uh, and the authoritative church. Yeah, and and again, people who are good, conservative, faithful, charismatics might be thinking, "Well, I reject all that. That's all bad." Well, again, we have to go back to the lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. How you pray changes what you believe. <sighs> This is, a little, this is going to sound controversial, but if you are someone who rejects transgenderism, but then you live in this world spiritually of confused gender roles, then you're in a place where at least implicitly you confuse the lines between men and women as being interchangeable. And, and this is a very dangerous place to be. This is why uh, conservative, traditionally minded Catholics are automatically repulsed at the idea of uh, female altar boys. Um, again, it's not because girls are bad or anything like that, but it's because that is a priestly, it is, it is, well, it's a priestly training ground for one. I mean, a lot of the jobs that, I mean, my, my seven and eight year old do torchbearer at high mass. They don't really do much. 
<laughs> but they're there because it's a it's a way of getting them up on the altar and exposing them to the priesthood. A girl could easily hold a torch, but that's not the point. The point is, is that it is a priestly place to be. Um, whereas in the charismatic renewal, there is this implicit understanding that things are in a constant flux. Um, that's the model. I mean, th you know, uh, the church was one way, and then there was this explosion of the Holy Ghost, and now we do things this way. And we have to keep moving towards this deeper uh, understanding of the Holy Ghost and finding out these new surprises. And, you know, I was looking up some research before this. One of the biggest proponents of the charismatic renewal was a man named Cardinal Suenens. And for those who don't know who Cardinal Suenens was, well, he was a man uh, at, at the Second Vatican Council, and he said... Um, that the Second Vatican Council was the French Revolution in the Church. And he didn't mean that as a negative. He believed that it was a fundamental change to the Church. Now, maybe he was being a little bit, speaking hyperbole, but nonetheless, that was his impression, that things were different and they'd never be the same. And he was a big proponent of the charismatic renewal, uh, and he was a big opponent of the traditional Latin Mass. And, you know, this is just my observations, but... You know, I went from being charismatic Catholic to traditional Catholic. And when I was in the charismatic world, there was a lot of, how should I put this? Yes, there was a general conservatism, but the idea that women would be careerists and, you know, work outside the home kind of as a basic norm. I understand there are different needs in different homes. You know, there's no black and white, but but generally speaking, it's been just in human history, husbands take care of the sort of external, women take care of the internal. There's a domestic church and the woman has her role in making this place into a sanctuary. And this is a very beautiful thing. Uh, but in the charismatic renewal, given the fact that there was such heavy female leadership, um, that was seen almost as anathema. You know, it was this idea, it's like uh, this idea that uh, there should be this traditional family life this was not something that was really even supported in my experience of a lot of the women who I met in the renewal. I don't know if your experience is the same. This is just anecdotal. I know it's not proof of the same thing, but it's just another piece of, it's just another story, another piece of evidence that um, baked into the practice of this thing, there is something that goes against the way Catholics have always acted. Yeah. And I think the imposition of hands was one that, that, that kind of drew my attention early on. I, I again, I think there's a lot of good, uh, people in the movement and the renewal that are out there praying, they're out there, they're, they're living their sacramental faith, but we've got to stay and look to stay grounded in tradition. We have to be very careful because, because again, modernism can slip into all of our thinking if we're not very careful. It's a summation of all heresies. You know, um, one of the things going back, um, the, the prefect for the, the congregation of the divine worship and the sacraments uh, was asked why, and, and look, I, I, I go, I like going to the, you know, I go to a fraternity mass. I go to the local diocese mass. I mean, I'm okay. Um, my preference, I like the Latin personally, but, uh, and, I, and I prefer the beauty. I'm a Benedictine oblate. I prefer the beauty and the reverence of a, of a chanted mass. Um, he was at this, this, this Cardinal was asked, why, um, why does, do, uh, why do you think that we, you can just suppress the, the tradition of the Latin mass? And his answer was, and you can read this on the, in, you know, in the interview, theology changes. And again, you see the practical functionality of process theology. We're living and we're now living in the final, the final roar of it that began in the 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 forties and fifties, and if not earlier, um, it's like that Billy Joel song. We didn't start the fire, you know. And uh, we're kind of standing. Uh, it goes all the way back again, long before the Refor the Reformation. This understanding of immanentism or nominalism, um, the lack of objective meaning of truth, uh, uh, and, and so and part of that. Part of that is we need to resurrect our understanding of the priesthood. What, what theologically we call the, the tria munera, the three office. Um, this, is, this, was, um, this is from St. Uh, uh, Ambrose on a catechesis on the rites. Uh, part of the catechetical, his teachings uh, before baptism, for, for catechumens getting ready to get baptized. Um, he, he's talking about when you get ready, when you're, when you're standing there and you look at this guy, you know, this is a doctor of the church, okay, St. Ambrose. Augustine's teacher. When you see this priest, the Levite, you saw the high priest, don't consider his outward form, but the grace given by their ministries. You spoke in the presence of angels, as is written, the lips of a priest guard knowledge, the men of the law from his mouth, 
for he is the angel of the Lord Almighty. There's no room for deception, no room for denial. He is an angel whose message is the kingdom of Christ and eternal life. You must judge him not by his appearance, but by his office. Remember what he has handed on to you. Weigh up his value and acknowledge. And the word he uses there, it's, it's non speciativi aistimitando sed munere, his office. And he says, when you see him, you see Peter, you see Paul. He said, you see Elijah calling fire down from heaven, not because he's attractive, not, you know, not because he, because he's intelligent, he has his PhD, because of the office of priesthood, you know, that that's what brings to bear the fire from heaven, uh, uh, St. Ambrose says. So what are those things? The three amunra, the munus regende, which is the, the uh, munus isn't just uh, a duty, a job, it's an obligation. It's an office. So the literal translation of munus in Latin is office, but an office is implied in an office is an obligation to engage, a responsibility. And so to, 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 to rule, munus regende, to teach, munus docende, and to sanctify, munus sanctificande. So the priest, through the bishop, right, has the authority of these, these three elements of his sacerdotal priesthood. This is why he differs in essence, in, in, in essence and degree, the church teaches, from the, the, uh, 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 the universal priesthood. We do these three things within our vocation as husband and father. But when you step into the priestly realm, you, 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 you inadvertently usurp that authority. And so there's just a, there is, and there is a big difference. We need to distinguish between praying with someone and praying over someone. And so when you begin to pray over people, I think you're stepping out of the line of authority and you're, and you're now grasping something an authority that does not belong to you. Yeah, that's well said. Um, okay. Two things. We got about 10 minutes or so, 10, 15 minutes. Um, why don't we go over two last things that I think are real dangers um, that are we haven't touched on yet. So one of them is ecumenism. Um, the word ecumenism historically means sort of within the universal church. So an ecumenical council is a church for the whole world because it's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the universal church. That's what ecumenism in the truest sense is. Um, but ecumenism in the modern sense is, you know, we've separate, separated brethren, the Protestants, and we get together and we sing Kumbaya, mm -hmm. and that's ecumenism, okay? And then it's extended even further to ecumenism includes, you know, tree planting ceremonies with the local imam and the local rabbi with the local bishop or whatever, okay? And then, you know, it gets weirder and weirder as we go until we have a Pachamama and we're like, what the heck's going on here? Now, um, it's impossible to avoid, avoid this ecumenism in the charismatic renewal, and in fact, Baked into the cake, it is, it is uh, these revival. I mean, it's it's a revival type of event. It's a revival movement where come one, come all. Uh, you know, it's common. You see this um, at these. There's that place in I think it's, is it Kansas International House of Prayer or something like that. And mm -hmm. it's a it's a famous place, and you'll see some of the you know the the the, the charismatic franciscans will be there and they'll be like a francis chan and they'll be so and so and they're all just getting together and they're in this movement they're praying with each other and we forget that protestantism is a heresy like protestantism is not true it contains truth in it of course because it contains things that are from catholicism but it's a heresy and we can't and we can't confuse uh, that which we think is good in our neighbor who is a Protestant because he's a good man and he believes in the Bible as far as he understands it. And those are good things, but he is part of a, her a heresy. And whether God will have mercy on him or not as an individual and he will be saved in some way, we don't know. That's not the question. The question is, he's part of a heretical sect that has been condemned by the church and normally speaking will damn your soul to be, to be a part of that, to live and die that way. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, after we maybe you can comment on that, um, I do want to talk about these things that have become sort of distilled sort of pseudo dogmas of the charismatic renewal, which is this idea of like impartation, this idea that we can sort of just sort of uh, not just not just do not lay people don't. It's not only that they have the ability to uh, sort of act in kind of pseudo priestly ways. They have abilities to do what priests actually do with the imposition of gifts and even in some extreme circumstances lay people are being asked to do things like consecrate the Eucharist. So perhaps we can touch on ecumenism here, and then we can go into some of the weirder stuff that we see with impartation. 
Yeah, well, I think I think we'd have to never lose sight of of the um, the final code of canon law, the supreme law of the church, the salvation of souls. We've kind of lost that um, with kind of a secular humanist approach. Uh, we need to be evangelizing. That we need to be a missionary church. We need to be evangelizing to the fullness of truth. Apologetics is fine and good, but we need to evangelize to bring people into the fullness of truth. If we believe what we believe happens at every holy mass, the consecration of the Holy Eucharist, we need to, we need to, ecumenism should be us driving because we have the goods of eternal life. We have, we have been entrusted the sacred deposit of faith. So we need to be evangelizing. We need to be not just doing common work together. We have to be very careful that we don't uncritically accept certain premises from Protestantism. And, you know, you and I have friends that are Protestants are good guys, you know, but we have to be careful that we just know what we believe and don't un- uncritically accept certain uh, elements uh, uh, into the, in, into our practices. Um, you know, a minimalist Mariology. I mean, she, the, the Virgin Mary has a total course of power over the demon. The, the Virgin Mary is present at, uh, in my experience, at every extraction of an evil spirit. The Virgin Mary is present and operant in the extraction of, of, of demons from the possessed. Uh, in nearly every case of possession, there is, there is an element of holding to one heresy regarding the teachings of the Virgin Mary. Why is that? So we have to bring the fullness of faith uh, into the battlefield. And we're at a point in, in our society that, you know, we, we have to really look at the world around us in our culture. And the church needs to respond with a full-throated uh, Roman Catholicism, which means a full-throated Mariology, a full-throated ecclesiology, a full-throated sacramentology, a full-throated priesthood. And the priests that, 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 that are out there that are serving and slugging it out every day at the parish level um, are driving uh, souls into heaven through the threefold office of, of sanctifying, preaching, and ruling. And so we have to drive people to the fullness of faith, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't neglect that. Uh, we, should, we should constantly be working towards uh, uh, um, helping others receive what you and I know, having a mother, having a Holy Eucharist, having the authority of the local bishop. I mean, it, 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 will, it will blow you away to see a possessed person uh, look, be forced by the priest to look at a picture of the local bishop. To see the authority, to see to see a possessed a demon react with a with a, with a complete and total reaction of fear at the picture of the local bishop, and so that authority carries into the cosmic realm and and into the sacramental life, and we need to start helping others receive and come into the fullness of the truth. And we got to look. We got to be joyful about it. We have to be, uh, uh, um, you know, as uh, you know, Scott Hahn. I've heard say, "Win some to win some." You have to be winsome. You have to be joyful, and let God do the work. You know, uh, but we have to be. We have to be there, as Saint Peter says, always ready to give a reason, a defense for our hope. Yeah, and if we're out there in an ecumenical thing, and we're kind of all on equal footing in this sort of charismatic Pentecostal thing, then the Protestants going to believe, "Well, I'm okay. You're okay." You know, I'm here, uh, I'm baptized in the Holy Ghost, you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, I go to this church, you go to that church, what's the big difference? I mean, that's, again, that's going to be what someone's going to believe, and that's a real, that's a real problem. Um, lastly, though, we were talking about this earlier, about uh, a few days ago, this impartation thing. I had never heard of this, uh, but this is something that we're seeing pop up. What is that about? Yeah, I first, I first heard of it in Germany when I was over there, they're doing it over there rather extensively. Um, and, and I think there's groups here. It's, 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 it's something again, that, that has been done in Protestant circles, Pentecostal circles, whereas, uh, the, through the imposition of hands, spiritual gifts are imparted. Now we know that from scripture, um, that authority comes through the imposition of hands. A priest's hands are sacred. If you've ever been present when a priest is anointed, um, given the anointing of the sick, I was present when one of my former, uh, pastors passed away when he, when I was there, when he was anointed, he put his hands out this way. The custom among the priestess is to turn their hands backwards and anoint the back of their hands because their priest, their hands are already anointed. So the priestly hands are anointed. And so um, there, there is a phenomenon in, in, in certain circles where they impose hands on others. Uh, you can ask for spiritual gifts and impose, and, and then the spiritual gifts can be transferred to over from one lay person to another person. Again, I just don't see the standing in tradition for that. And our tradition as Western Roman Catholics, that those charisms are given through the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of, of baptism, and then the fullness 
and confirmation. That's when the spiritual gifts are bestowed. Now, do those awaken in us down the road as we begin to activate and begin to get, you know, in, in our own work and the apostle that sharing and again, you and I, you and I don't work. Let me even say it, this be clear. Benedict always got hit for this sort of stuff when he, he would have clarity, but we don't have a, a ministry. Ministry properly goes to the ordained. We share in the apostolate, apostolic works of Jesus Christ. If I do anything, I'm doing apostolic work by teaching, etc. So, so we have to we share in the, in the in in the apostolic works of the church, but we're not ministers. We're not sharing their ministries properly speaking. So we have to be careful. If you if you collapse the two priesthoods into one, the universal and the sacerdotal, then when you open this this uh, up, back up then I can impart gifts to you back and forth. And to me, it's just a practice that I, that I would not, I would not encourage people to do. Well, and you know, again, people will find justifications for these things in the scriptures, but because they're interpreting them outside of the, of the tradition of how it's been understood always. So yes, you yeah, can for, find, for, for example, um, Paul imposes hands, right there. You have a, You have an apostle imposing hands on a bishop. Uh, I've heard, well, the 70 or 72, depending on, on your, on your, which text you're using, but the 72 apostles were being, were sent out. Right. And, uh, we'll see they're out there driving out demons and that shows that we should be doing, they're out there baptizing, they're out there laying hands, right. Uh, healing. Um, but if you look at, for example, uh, Hippolytus of Rome, um, early church father, second century guy, uh, list off. All those seventy that were sent out, um, and they were all bishops of you know of, of, of Damascus uh, of 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 all the different parts of that greater Medi- you know Mediterranean area. Those were all future bishops. If you look at Ludwig Ott and his Fundamentals of Catholic uh, Dogma, he says when Christ sent the, the apostles out, he gave them apostolic authority at that time, and it's consistent with again the the list of those seventy or seventy two were all. Uh, apostles, um, but they were, they became apostles and were bishops. And so we have to be very careful about rereading history through a modernist lens. We have to read scripture and history uh, from the heart of the church and with the lens of 2000 years of tradition. Yeah, well said. So ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope that we have provided, I hope we've been charitable. I think we have been um, because um, again, I have great experiences with charismatic renewal and, and lots of great friends and things like that. And, and ultimately um, we have to give way for the truth that is found in the consistent tradition of the church. And our opinions must come second to that. So if there's something that someone's heard in this interview and they're thinking to themselves, well, that's, I don't like that. You know, that's, that upsets me because of all the good work that I've seen this thing or that thing again, you know, good work is done by many people in the church, in many different positions. Um, and no one's taking anything away from that. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there's a, that the theology of the, the way that these things operate, the way that, that they present themselves, it doesn't mean it's all been fleshed out. And it doesn't mean that there aren't dangers. Because you know, an analogy that I always use, if your ship is off by a half a degree, over a thousand or 2000 miles at sea, you're going to end up in a completely wrong direction. For the first hundred miles or so, you're going to be right beside the ship going the right way, and you're not going to know. Um, but you can get far afield if you're just off by a little bit. So people have to make sure that they're educated on those things. Um, you can find Dan's book, uh, Libra Cristo Method. Um, he's working on a follow-up right now. The link for that is in the description to this video. Um, anything else before we go you'd like to add? No, good. I, I I appreciate your podcast, and I just like I said, it's, this is no, this is not a personal uh, attack uh, at all. I mean, to me, I, I think we've lost what I what I really appreciate of studying uh, in the, in the, in England is that the Catholics are a minority, less than ten percent, about eight percent. Even Christians, I don't know if to this day hold a majority over there. Uh, um, you're looking at roughly forty five to fifty percent in England. Uh, so. Uh, are, are, are baptized Christians, either Anglican or, or, or Roman Catholic. So, um, so you have you, you over there. Uh, they're much more open to have discussions like this. They're right? able to discuss ideas and 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 have discussions uh, on these various topics that are somewhat controversial or or or, or 
where people get emotional over there. You know, the, the Brits, man, they're very calm. They don't get emotional about these things or, you know, uh, um, they don't hug, so to speak. But we get very passionate about this. But I think we have to be able to get back as Roman Catholics to have the dialogue and discussion on some of these principles um, to be able to because we, we have to moving forward. We're, we're living in really, really uh, exciting, but also dangerous times. So we have to get, we have to be able to have these discussions on, on various topics to be able to, uh, uh, to work our way through, uh, um, you know, again, very rough waters. And it comes by uh, coming back to first principles uh, and, and stay in your lane, as we said in the military and go back to first principles to help understand. And this is how we're going to end up again, evangelizing the modern world, beginning with our own families, hopefully. Speaking of Anglicans, do you know that uh, Anglican priest, Calvin Robinson, he made a splash with his uh, thing at the Oxford Union. He got canceled by GB News or whatever. He was just ordained a Catholic priest, sort of. He, uh, I just saw he was ordained to the old Catholics in uh, the orders of, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, but I just, yeah. it's fascinating. I mean, he's so smart. He was so strong. And then uh, now he's become a Catholic priest in the, in the valid or valid order sense, uh, but in a, in a group that's sort of schismatic or I don't know, in a weird position. So anyway, pray for that guy because um, I was hoping he was actually going to come all the way home. Um, so I don't know, but that's just strange, but yes, dialogue has to have an end to it. We're not just, you know, uh, if you saw our priest yesterday, we, we started a, um, our whole, our whole pair, our whole priory is doing a consecration uh, the total consecration of Jesus through Mary, the Montfortian thing. We're doing that uh, leading up to the Immaculate Conception in December. And so we had a conference last night, benediction and rosary and, all, and mass and all this kind of stuff. And he said, modern man is insane. You know, he says, if if you looked around and you saw men driving in cars and you stopped them at the light and you said, where are you going? They said, I don't know. I'm just driving around. Who knows where? He'd say, well, that person's lost his mind. He said, everyone now is just sort of driving around. They don't know where they're going. Dialogue has to have a purpose. It's not just this endless, um, you know, even if, even if you go to the coffee shop and you see the old Portuguese or Lebanese guys at the coffee in the morning and they're always having these loud conversations, they're trying to get to a point. And when they get to the point, the point has been made and that's the point of the conversation. The dialogue has to have an end goal. So um, people need to be able to put on their big boy pants and have these hard conversations and say, all right, you know, I had some ideas and, and, and they don't seem to fit all the way through. So I, now I've got to change my thinking to conform to the truth. So I thank you for coming on, Dan, and helping me with that because uh, you were able to explain it in a way better than I could. Yeah, yeah. And I, the, the, I remember an image came to mind just now when I was, I was um, in a really bad rainstorm in a, in a very small helicopter uh, in Iraq. And we were trying to find our way into uh, an airfield. And it was, you know, bad weather and helicopters don't mix. Uh, we like to fly low on the ground and, and rub against the bushes and trees, you know, and, and good weather. And so when you're, when you're flying in, in the dark and the blind and you punch out of the clouds and you see the runway white lights lighting up, it's just like, yes, you know, we have to stop looking at, at the church with animosity. We need to see the church and the doctrines of the church and the deposit of faith as runway lights that guide us back home to, to safe landing. And so uh, we just need to, 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 to look to the tradition of the church, uh, going back deep into the early church and the developed tradition and St. Thomas and the, and, and the scholastic tradition, the neo-scholastic tradition to help shed light on these perilous bad weather times that we're living in. And so I would just encourage everyone just to keep, keep grinding it out. Don't ever lose hope that, that, uh, as Mordecai told, told Esther, you were born for such a time as this. God put us here in this time, this family, this church to help serve him at this time uh, uh, and to bring light uh, in, in a period of really darkness. And, and how do we do that? By the light of truth as has been revealed to the Roman Catholic Church over 2000 years. Where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more. So yeah, yeah well, well put. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> check out the book, uh, Dan's book. It's in the description description box for this video. And as always, let me know what you think of the comments. Please be nice. If you're nice, I'll reply. If you're not nice, I might reply in a snarky way um, or not at all. So this has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.